And good morning again. Um, I, I have a question for you today, that I, and I often start out with one of those like thought questions to get you guys, your, your brains and hearts kind of pumping in the right direction. And today it's an easy question because it's only a yes or no question, so um, you can think about the answer to it. it. It's simply this. Do you believe in Christmas? Do you believe in Christmas? I know that sounds like a really corny question, right? It sounds like a Frosty the Snowman kind of question or something that should be on a, a Hallmark uh, you know, Christmas special or something like that. But I, I assure you, the way I'm asking this question, it is extremely important. In fact, it's critical. In fact, the, the, the truth of the Christian faith largely rests on the answer to that question. And if somebody comes up to you one day and offers you something that they claim is spiritual truth and claims to be teaching something about God to you, what they share with you, if, if it goes against the right answer to the question, do you believe in Christmas, you actually don't need to listen to that person because what they're sharing with you is something that is not the truth. I would say even beyond that, as you look at your life today and how you view it, especially when it comes to the difficult things that you go through in life and wondering where God is in all those things, and as you look at the future and where you are headed in your life, not just in the next few days but throughout eternity, and we'll talk about that, I would submit to you that this question is crucially important. Do you believe in Christmas. And I'm going to prove that to you by taking you this morning to the book of First John, which is not a book that we, we talk about a whole lot at Christmas time, but when you get to First John, about five books from the end of the Bible, just go to chapter 4, and we're really only going to look at one verse today, but I'm going to read you three verses just to give you the context of the verse that we're looking at. Uh, John, in, in this letter to Christians called First John, that we call First John today, uh, he's dealing with a lot of different things, but one of the things he wants to make sure he does as he uh, writes to his flock of believers is to protect them from false teachers, from people that are going around and sharing things about Jesus and about the faith that is not true and that could be very dangerous for their spiritual lives. And this part of John, 1 John, is actually uh, one of those passages. And it starts out, I'll start reading right in verse 1. And I'll just read three verses for now. We're going to look at verse 2 very carefully. But here's what John says to the church. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. John has a very similar passage in 2 John. Uh, the one here is a little more extended, and so I, I chose to, to share this one with you. Um, but it sounds like a pretty important couple of verses there, doesn't it? This, this uh, week, a little bit earlier this week, I was watching a YouTube video. And on that YouTube video, uh, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir was singing, and they were singing... Uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that gorgeous, beautiful Christmas hymn that was composed by the great composer Felix Mendelssohn and has lyrics by Charles Wesley. And You know the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And as you can imagine, when the Mormon Tabernacle Choir did it, it sounded awesome, you know, with all the instrumentation and all the parts and everything. And, and as they got to the second verse of the song, they sang these words. Uh, 
Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold Him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Now in flesh the Lord is seen, Savior through eternity. And if your little alarm bells just went off, that's good. Mine did too. Not that what they just sang in those uh, line there was untrue. Those are beautiful words and they're very true. But that's not what Charles Wesley wrote. He didn't write, Now in flesh the Lord is seen, Savior through eternity. What Charles Wesley wrote was this, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. So, why did the Mormons change the words? Well, because what Wesley was basically saying was this, that God became a man. And that is a statement that they take issue with. Now, the Mormons would not, den- this, is not this is not an anti-Mormon sermon, I'm just using this as an example, but the Mormons would not deny that, that Jesus is in some sense divine. They just don't believe that He is divine in the same way that God the Father is. They don't believe that the Christmas miracle was that the one true God, the God that we sang about today when we said, you are God alone, that God, the eternal, all-powerful creator of everything, they don't believe that that God actually became a human being. And as I said, maybe it's not fair to pick on the Mormons specifically because if you think about it, that's a hard truth to comprehend, isn't it? It's a hard truth to accept. It sounds crazy. One of the great monotheistic world religions, Islam, they stumble on the same exact point. You might not know this, but Muslims have great respect for Jesus. In fact, a lot of them, when they say His name, will immediately say, peace be upon Him. They believe He was born of a virgin. They believe He performed great miracles. They believe that He ascended to heaven. They even believe that He is returning one day to earth. But for them to say that Jesus is God in the flesh is to commit blasphemy and to insult God by making Him out to be less than He is. And yet John says here that the incarnation, God becoming man, taking flesh upon Himself, is actually crucial to the Christian message. In fact, John says a so-called gospel that does not include this truth is not just a little bit off, it's actually anti-Christian. So I want to ask you, is it possible that we take this truth for granted? After all, I mean, if so many of the world's most religious people have such a problem believing this, then maybe it's more unbelievable than we think. Maybe it's way more amazing than we ever thought, and maybe it would serve us well to kind of ponder on it a little bit more and think about it a little bit more, or maybe even a lot more. The Bible tells us that the eternal God, the God, God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the Lord of the universe, came to this earth where we live, and that he did so by becoming one of us. That's the message of, of John, 1 John 4, 2. That's the Christmas message. And if we fail to believe that, or since I'm sure we say we do believe it, if we fail to adequately appreciate it, then then what we're doing is we're missing out on two awesome gospel truths. One of them has to do with God's love for us. The other one has to do with God's plans for us. And I want to talk about both of those with you today. Let's just look carefully at the message here in in this main verse, 1 John 4, 2. 
it says this. It starts by saying out that Jesus Christ has come. Jesus Christ has come. First of all, let me make it clear that that phrase, has come, speaks of pre-existence, which is a fancy way of saying that Jesus existed even before he was born as a baby. He was already in existence. For Isaiah 9, one of the most famous chapters, one of the most famous prophecies that we often recite to each other around this time of year about the birth of Christ, says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now, is that just a happy accident of Hebrew poetry because there's some repetition there? Or was Isaiah perhaps subtly trying to get something across to us there? That yes, the baby was born. Yes, unto us a child was born. That child, that baby, that human life actually came into existence when Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of Mary. The child was born, but the son was not born. The son was given because the son had been around before this. In fact, God the Son had been around for all eternity. Otherwise, why is one of Isaiah's names for this child Everlasting Father, that is, Father of Eternity? From what I understand about what the Jews believed when Jesus came, a lot of them would not have had much of a problem saying that the Messiah, this King of Israel that was coming, the Christ, They wouldn't have had that much of a problem believing that Christ was more than human and even in some sense God because they had some Old Testament scriptures that they they really had to deal with. They were very familiar with Daniel chapter 7 where there's this figure called the Son of Man who is distinct from God the Father but at the same time there's something divine and more than human about him. Their big problem was not that the Christ could somehow be God. Their big problem was that this guy Jesus they thought could never be the Christ because he didn't fit their preconceived notions of what the Christ was supposed to to be. Paul actually confirms this in Romans chapter 9. He says this. He says that from the Jewish nation is descended, quote, the Christ who is God over all forever praised. Amen. So when when John says that, that Christ came, he is affirming that God, the one true God in the form of Jesus, came to this earth. And I'm going to share with you kind of a, maybe what might sound like kind of a far-fetched illustration, but it'll give you a pretty good idea of, at least go in the direction of what happened here. I'm going to ask you to imagine that I had an old college roommate. Okay, I have actually a couple of old college roommates. That you don't have to imagine. The rest of it isn't true. But, but let's say I had an old college roommate, and, and I was real close to this guy back in school, and then we kind of went our separate ways after that. And let's say that this guy worked for a big international corporation. And they, shortly after hiring him, had sent him to their field office in Pakistan. And so he had been living there for many, many years, all this time since, since we had been together. And suppose that during that time, because he was a good friend of mine, I have done my best to keep up with him and, and to send him emails and to reach out to him on Facebook and to send him pictures of my kids and even call him from time to time to see how he's doing. But let's just say that even though I did all of that, he never return any of my calls. He never sent me an email, never tried to contact me one time, and he's been basically just blowing me off for the last 30 years and not getting back to me. But then suppose that through the grapevine, I somehow found out that this friend of mine was going through a really, really tough time. His wife had left him for another man. His kids had stopped talking to him. 
In fact, he had also contracted a form of cancer that the doctors thought might be terminal. And all this had happened in the last few months. And now he was in the hospital. And let's say I was trying to decide what to do. And let's say that you probably wouldn't be very surprised if I would then reach out to him on social media and try to contact him. You probably wouldn't be real surprised if I sent him a few emails and tried to to see if I could contact him that way. You might not be surprised if I tried to call him so that I could maybe pray with him over the phone or reach out to him or share God's love for him in, in, in some way like that. You probably wouldn't be surprised even if I tried to find out who some Christian leaders were in the city where he lived so that they, I could call them and say, hey, can you, can you check on my friend? He's really going through a hard time and he needs someone to be there with him. But what would you do if I instead did this? If I said, you know what? I've got to go see him. I've got to see my friend. I've got to be with him during this time in his life. And so I'm going to leave my family at Christmas time. I'm going to walk away from my new grandbaby. I'm going to leave my house. I'm going to leave the tree, the lights, the presents, and everything else. And I'm going to, to pay a huge last minute fare and get on a big crowded coronavirus filled airplane that connects in Chicago and then goes through some far eastern nation and then finally gets over to Islamabad, Pakistan, and then I'm going to get off the plane and I'm going to try to navigate a city where I don't speak the language and I'm going to do my best to try to find my friend so I can sit with him in the hospital while my family does Christmas without me. What would you say to that? You'd probably say, wow, you, you really are devoted to your friend. That's, that's pretty radical. You'd probably say that, that I, I really loved him, that I really cared about him. You'd probably say that my devotion to him was almost unbelievable. In fact, you'd probably say that it was downright unsupportable given the way that he's been blowing me off for the last 30 years. Why would I do that? Right? Listen, as far-fetched as that sounds, what God did for you was much more than that much more than that. He didn't send another message. He didn't send another prophet. He didn't send an angel. He didn't send some lesser God. He actually sent himself. He came into this world, into our home, into our messed up neighborhood, into our pains and our frustrations and our hassles and our difficulties and our strained relationships and our heartbreaks. He came into all that stuff. It says in the Bible, he made his dwelling among us. God made the trip. God made the trip. And of course, you can take the analogy further if you want to because God did a lot more than that. Let's say I somehow made it to my friend's bedside in Pakistan and he responded by saying to me, hey, what are you doing here? I didn't ask for you to come. Get out. That would be a fair representation of what happened to Jesus. In fact, if I went even further and they found out that by some kind of blood transfusion I could save my friend's life and so I gave my blood to save his life, but in the process I contracted an infection and I died in that hospital. That still wouldn't be out of line. It's perfectly consistent with what God did for you and for me. You know, it's so easy sometimes for us to feel overwhelmed by all the little things and some of the big things that happen to us in our day-to-day lives, and, and we say, yeah, I get it. I know God. God is really powerful. God is really awesome. There's nothing that God can't do, and I appreciate that, but how much does he really care about this horrible relationship that I have with my coworker? 
How much does God really care uh, about my messed up family that can't even get along with each other for one lousy holiday? How much does he really care that our adult son or daughter seems to have given up on the family and, and seems to pretty much be going off the deep end? How much does God care really about how hard it is to watch my parents get old and frail and need more and more help? How much does he care about my my diabetes, my Parkinson's, my Crohn's disease, my cancer, my heart issues? How much does he care about the burdens that I have to carry through every single day down here in this broken world that is so full of hassles and disappointments? How invested is God really in my life? Listen, if you really believe in Christmas, you've got to believe that he is pretty invested. I mean, what, what greater lengths could he possibly have gone to in order to show you that he cares? How much more of an investment could he possibly make in understanding you and in loving you than to actually become what you are and then move into the place where you live? What more does he have to do? What more does he have to give up than what he's already given that you will know that he cares about you that much. To believe in Christmas is to believe in your heart of hearts that God loved you so much that he came to you, that he made the trip, that he went the entire distance, that that he came all the way himself, that he bridged the whole distance. But there's more than that. There's more than that because John doesn't just say that he came. John also says that he came in the flesh, in the flesh. Now we know that flesh here means that God took on flesh and blood, that he became a human being, a real human being. And in fact, we know that what the Son of God actually did was to start out his life as a human baby, right? Now how many of you love babies? I see one here. I love babies, okay? I I love babies even more in the last five months or so, okay? But you know what? A human baby is about one of the most pathetic, helpless creatures on the face of the earth, right? I mean, think about it. A baby horse teaches itself to walk in about two hours. A baby human, after about four months, maybe can roll over, right? Big whoop, right? In fact, when he rolls over, he can't even roll back the other direction. He just sits there like a flipped crab, kicking his arms and legs because he's helpless, The eternal Son of God actually became one of those things. But then think about what that means, because it's pretty cosmic. I mean, think this in a way, what happened at Christmas in a way, actually represented a change in God. Now your alarm bells just went off again, right? Because you know as I do that God doesn't change. And that's true. He doesn't change. His essence doesn't change. His character doesn't change. His love doesn't change. His holiness doesn't change. Nothing in God's character changes. God did not lose anything when Christ became a man. While Jesus, it's true, he emptied himself of all of his heavenly glory, he still retained all of his divine attributes. Jesus was still God even while he was on earth. But on that first Christmas, God added something to himself that he had never had or experienced before. 
without losing anything, God added something to himself, and that is he took on our humanity forever. Jesus is still a man. He took on, as it were, our weakness. And when Jesus did this, we know, because Hebrews tells us, that that helped him to to become an effective high priest for us, an advocate, someone who could stand up for us, someone who could be our friend, because now he could sympathize with us. He could have compassion because he knows from experience what we're going through. That's part of what happened when Jesus became a man. But that isn't all that happened when God took on flesh. Because in doing so, he also confirmed that there was something very special about his plans for the human race. Plans that will one day be realized in the lives of the followers of Jesus. In Psalm chapter 8, Psalm 8, David says this. He says, What is man that you, God, are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? David's saying, look, why, why do you make such a big deal about people, about us lowly human beings? Why do you care about us? Why do you pay so much attention to us? You've crowned us with glory and honor and put us just a little bit lower than the angels. And David's amazed by that. And that psalm is great just on its own, of course. But in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit reveals to us that this psalm about the position of man in the universe was also a prophecy about Jesus who was made, he reminds us, for a little while lower than the angels and was then afterwards crowned with glory and honor. So after becoming a man, after entering into our Psalm 8 experience, after Jesus was crucified for us to forgive our sins, after he was raised again, Jesus ascended, we know this, he ascended to the highest place of honor at the right hand of the Father on high. And here's the really weird thing. Ephesians 2, verse 6, tells us that when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father on high, He brought us with Him. He brought us with Him. Yeah, us human beings, us Christians. It says there that we were raised up with Jesus and, quote, seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. You know, when when younger kids come to know Jesus as their Savior, and when they want to get baptized, often I have them in my office, sometimes with their parents, and we talk about what it means to get baptized, and we talk about identifying with Jesus. And one of the things we talk about is I have to, I have to teach them about our union with Christ, which is a big theological concept. So I want to, I want to try to simplify that. And so what I'll say is it's kind of like being stapled to Jesus. Like, you got kachunk, you got stapled to Jesus. So when Jesus went to the cross, your sins went with him to the cross. When Jesus went into the tomb, your old life went into the tomb with him. When he raised from the dead, you have a new life. You're raised from the dead with Jesus. Well, where is Jesus now if we're still stapled to him? He's at the right hand of the Father on high, right? So where are we? Spiritually speaking, not in our, not, maybe not in our everyday experience so that we feel it all the time, but where are we, spiritually speaking, position-wise? We're with Christ. We're in the heavenly places seated at the right hand of the Father. What kind of honor do we now have? What kind of glory are we Christians headed for? What kind of eternity can we look forward to? You get some hints of it in the Scriptures because Paul says we're going to be glorified one day. He also says we're going to judge angels. What in the world does that mean? John says that we're actually going to reign with Jesus. And he also says that what we one day will be has not yet been made known. In other words, we don't really have a concept of it yet. We probably couldn't even 
conceive of it. That sounds pretty intriguing. Look, I don't know what all this means, and I can't draw you some chart that says, well, we're here, and the angels are here, and God's here. I'm not going to try to do that, but I will tell you this. You can count on this. At the end of time, at the end of time, far above all principalities and powers, as the Bible would say, far, far above all angelic beings, seated on the throne of ultimate authority in the universe, is one of us a human being with flesh and blood and permanent scars on his hands and side where he redeemed us. And the Bible says that he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And we mere human beings will reign with him throughout eternity you know what? No wonder people have so much trouble accepting this. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? But it's true. It's true. Now, we will never be gods. We will never be gods. We are created beings. There is only one God. We sang that this morning. And I've, yes, I know there are groups that believe that one day, you know, if we play our cards right, and if we're good enough, that we may be eventually reincarnated enough times in the right direction to actually become gods of our own little planets. There are a lot of things wrong with that idea, but it strikes me that one of them is that they may not be aiming high enough. To believe in Christmas is to believe that God has so dignified the human race by actually becoming one of us, actually coming to share in our humanness, and that as a result, those who put their faith in Christ are thereby united with him in his death and his resurrection, and we will one day experience a glorified humanity that is far beyond anything that we can currently imagine. Now, I want you to think about all the people sitting around you in this room today, okay? including the funny-looking ones, all right? And the, uh, the silly ones, the ones that walked in here with a limp this morning maybe, or the ones that sat down in their seats with a groan and they're moving kind of slow. Think about the ones that are a little bit messed up, you'd say, or maybe have made some bad decisions in life. Now we're kind of getting to most of us, I guess. Think about that neighbor who might not be here, but who doesn't know Christ. Think about that coworker who gives you so much grief. Think about that relative that just annoys the tar out of you. Have you considered what C.S. Lewis once said about him or her? That the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. So given that you believe in Christmas, how are you going to treat these people? How are you going to conceive of these people? How are you going to visualize them in your mind? What will you think about them? Can you still dismiss them as bothersome or unimportant? How can you help this person that you might be thinking of find his or her place in eternal glory rather than experiencing eternal corruption and loss. 
I want to leave you with some of my favorite lyrics, and then we'll, we'll sing a Christmas song as we close. But the, the one I'm going to share with you now is not an old Christmas carol. It's actually from the 80s. Um, these are actually words from Michael Card, who is a very good songwriter. He said this, When the Father longed to show the love he wanted us to know, he sent his only Son, and so became a holy embryo. Because the fall did devastate, Creator must now recreate. So to take our sin was made like us, so we could be like Him. No fiction is fantastic or wild. A mother made by her own child. The helpless babe who cried was God incarnate and man deified. That is the mystery more than you can see. Give up on your pondering and fall down on your knees. Do you believe in Christmas? Are you sure? Because it's crazy. Do you believe in Christmas? Let's pray, and then we'll sing all the lyrics to Hark the Herald Angels Sing.